Uh, welcome to a very special episode of Family Ties, where we're going to be talking... No, sorry. No. Of, of the Cold War uh, and the history of the Cold War. For those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Cameron Riley, along with Ray Harris Jr. Say hello, Ray. Hello, Ray. Hi, everybody. Uh, we, we host a Cold War podcast called A Cold War, because we're creative like that. Um, and with us on the line is uh, Jeffrey Hogue, the host of another Cold War show, the History of the Cold War podcast. Is that what it's called, Jeff? Yes, exactly. I, I, I was very creative in my name as well. So, <laughs> Barry and Stan, uh, Jeff, are the guys that run the ad agency that we uh, use to come up with all of our names and uh, that you obviously engage them as well. They're very creative like that. So, uh, Jeff, we were we were just talking a bit off air. So I think you started your Cold War podcast a couple of months before we started this one. Uh, so you've been running a, a few years, a couple of years. Um, to tell us um, what what led to you doing a podcast. Is it, was was this your first podcast that uh, you've done? Yes, actually, this was the, my very first podcast that I did. Um, I was always interested in history. Uh, went to school for history. I have a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in it. Um, decided it wasn't going to make me a lot of money, unfortunately. Um, got a job in corporate America. Uh, started working as software sales. Um, I, had, I had a friend who was really into podcasts. He, I was like, oh, you should really do a history podcast. And uh, in school, I focused on the Cold War. That was my major focus. And um, I met a guy at work. Uh, who was really into podcasts as well. And I didn't know so much of the technical end, although I've picked up a lot more over the last two years, but I obviously knew the history part. And he was like, hey, you know, we should put this together. We can start a podcast. And I was like, okay, that's a great idea. Um, we wrote up the first two episodes and, you know, put it out. We got a pretty good response. And we were like, oh, oh, oh my God, like now, now we have to make more episodes. <laughs> and, you know, we, we kind of started from there. Um, I, we have, you know, our show basically kind of covers uh, the Cold War in a long format form. Um, you know, I was a big history of the history of Rome uh, podcast, and uh, we kind of took a similar approach in that, you know, we're trying to go from the very beginning to the very end or from roughly 1945 to 1991. Um, we do right now we're covering the last couple of years we're covering the first five years, roughly of the Cold War and kind of what happened. So we do jump around a little bit, but it's a little chronological as well. I mean, I think that's one of the challenges of talking about the Cold War, um, which we talked a little bit, I think, or we alluded to a little bit before we started in that, you know, uh, trying to understand, because a lot of events are happening simultaneously and there's a lot of things going on. It's like, how do you break all that down? Um, so I, in our, in our show, we kind of started from a five and then forward like a decade kind of perspective. Um, to kind of build out that grand era. I, I think yeah. our, our lawyers want us to point out that even though we are doing basically the same show, that we had decided to do it previously when we were in Vegas. So it's not like we listened to your show and said, this is really good. We should rip this guy off. So just to let you know, it was decided months before. That's our legal disclaimer right there. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, that, that's, I think that's great that you guys kind of have the show you do in terms of a conversational um, element. I think that, you know, we, we, I think we bring a different perspective to the Cold War. 
Um, there's a lot that happened during the Cold War, so I think you can take it from many different perspectives. Yeah. There's a lot there. I think that's one of the, the, the reasons I was so interested in doing a show about it. And uh, when I started looking, I was actually kind of surprised that nobody else had really had started or not as many podcasters had actually talked about it or, or tried to uh, wrestle with the topic yet. Yeah, trust me, I've I've taken Ray from lots of different perspectives over the years, and um, no. yeah, what? So, so we shouldn't talk about that on this show, okay? Um, uh, yeah, when <laughs> uh, we when we had the idea, well, somebody, one of our listeners, gave us the idea. Said, "Why don't you do a show about the Cold War?" And we just went, "Oh yeah, that's perfect," because we were trying to figure out what our next show was going to be. Uh, and I went looking to see if I was like, surely somebody's already doing this. And I, I, as I said to you earlier, we just, I think we found your show and maybe um, one other. And I think you'd only just started. You're only a couple of episodes in. So we thought, oh, great. And, you know, there's plenty of shows about Caesar and Rome and all that kind of stuff. There's plenty of opportunity for different perspectives and different approaches and uh you know, not everybody is going to like our show because we goof around and swear and play rock songs. It's not for everybody's taste, as we know from our reviews. You were telling us a funny story before. You should you should tell people about the uh, negative review you got on iTunes. Well, actually, it was a positive review that we got on iTunes oh, for your show. Right. So, yeah, he gave us four stars. He, was, he said, you know, this is a great show, but these guys swear too much, and uh, which we thought was funny because we're – we, you know, we're like, no, I think, you know, he's actually listening to Cam and Ray and he somehow, you know, wandered on to ours. I, we have a lot of cross listeners already. Um, you know, we, we get a lot because I, I know when I, I, I research or I pull up our show, especially in Apple iTunes, your show is like the number one recommended after ours. Um, so I'm sure we already share a number of listeners right. and, you know, if, if, which I think is great, too. I mean, that's one of the great things about podcasting versus traditional media like tv or uh, radio is that you know you they can listen to my show and then they can listen to your show i mean they have so they have you know 24 hours in a day you know they can choose which one or when they want to listen to each so and you know a lot of people out there love cold war content yeah so uh sorry go ahead cam no after you Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. No, Jeff, first of all, I wanted to say as someone who also has a degree in history who couldn't make enough money from it uh, and also went into the private sector, it's good to meet some a kindred spirit who is trying to use this degree in a podcast. So I, I, I feel a, a closeness to you already. Um, and at oh, some, thank you. Yeah. And at some point, I don't know when we want to jump into the actual conversation, but one of whenever we're ready, one of my first questions to you is going to be, if FDR had lived a little longer, do you think he would have, uh, uh, just like Truman, agreed or, or, or ordered to use the bomb against Japan and, and against a, a military target? Yeah, so so my my gut feeling, because obviously we don't know because he died, um, my gut feeling is that he would have. And um, the reason I say that is because I think it was just the mentality of the period and that they had already obviously been fighting a world war. Um, we had already, especially in the case of Japan, um, but also we'd already, we had done, you know, bombing of civilian centers in Germany as well. Um, you know, we were fire bombing most of the Japanese cities already. Um, and I know, you know, he, FDR had certain unpolite views in 21st century terms, you know, in terms of his ideas about races and peoples. Right. Um, you know, even in 1936, 
he had written about, you know, if we have a problem with the Japanese in the future, we can put them into camps, right? And that they're not real American citizens. And, you know, he had issues with Japanese immigrating to America because he didn't want them to interbreed with Caucasian Americans. He thought, you know, it was bad for the races. So him having those types of ideas and, you know, the way that the public was was engaged in the war at that time, and we had a lot of, you know, propaganda, you know, Japan attacked us, losing a lot of people. I see him, you know, if I had a bet on it, I would say, yeah, definitely dropped. Okay. I guess my thing is, um, it, it just just to be a typical American, if you spend two point two billion dollars on something, you're probably going to use it once it's ready. I mean, just just the idea of this of a word of this getting out that we have this bomb. Because if you think about it, the average American or maybe some of the politicians who barely knew anything about it think, well, it's just a bomb. It's a really big bomb, but it's just a bomb, and we've been using bombs for the last couple of years. But the idea of yeah. having a bomb that we could use that would wipe out an entire city and we don't do it. That politician's going to pay a price because again, you've got thousands of Americans losing their lives in the Pacific. You've got them in the Europe, you've got them on, on the waters. So the American people would not take too kindly to having a bomb and not using it. Totally. Yeah. I, t- I think that's one of the things that's forgotten. I mean, you know, Truman, especially was going to run for reelection, uh, which he did in 48, you know, Yes, because I'm sure if you're gonna if it came out that you know he could have saved hundreds of thousands if we had gone ahead with the invasion and it came out later on that he could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives with this super weapon and he decided to not use it. Yeah, you know, I, I, he might not have been and he barely won the election anyways. So you know, I think he was, and I think that was a part of the decision. You know, of, well, if, you know, if we I don't try this weapon and. We spent, and you're right, so much money on this, and our people had to die anyways. What am I going to tell my my voters right. four years from now? Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm. You know, obviously, I'm uh, gonna. I, I, I kind of struggle with that perspective. Whilst I agree that it was, as you said, Ray, it was just a bomb. It was just another bomb, and we've been, we, you Americans, have been dropping bombs on them for a long time as we just talked about in uh, one of our earlier episodes, one of our recent episodes, like a couple hundred thousand Japanese dead already because of just traditional bombing from the B-29 attacks. Um, my understanding is that you know, the vast majority of the political and military leadership of the United States uh, didn't think it was going to be necessary to either invade or drop the bomb on Japan to bring about the surrender. We haven't gotten to this in, in huge detail yet on our series, but we we will over the next uh, month or so. But there's plenty of quotes from America's top military and civilian leadership from around this time um, and afterwards saying that they totally disagreed with the decision. And, uh, you know, of course, one of the things that they didn't even wait to see the effects of was the announcement from the Soviets that they were ending their neutrality pact with Japan and were going to declare war on them. Uh, you know, the historians, some historians over the last seven years have argued that you know, that was scheduled to happen on August 7th. You know, uh, Stalin had famously agreed 
um, with with uh, Truman and and previously with um, uh, FDR Yalta, that um, he would go to he would enter the war with Japan around about three months after the end of the war with Germany. The Germans officially surrendered on May seventh, so by August seventh. The, the Soviets were scheduled to declare war on Japan. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that the uh, bomb on Hiroshima was dropped on August 6th, the day before the Soviets could declare. I mean, if, if, if Truman had held off the bombing just for another week to see what impact it would have had when the Soviets declared war um, on Japan, surely... That that wouldn't have, that wasn't a hard thing to do. It's not like Americans often portray it as a binary decision. It was either invade or drop the bomb, but that's not true. You know they could have held off. Well, I think the the other thing is too. I mean, at least from what I've read, I mean, I do agree. There were some people who felt that they shouldn't drop the bomb. That you know, within government, um, I think there was a group of other people, obviously within government that were definitely for, you know, dropping the bomb and the necessity for the bomb. I mean, the, the, the plans had been drawn up. Operation Downfall had been drawn up. You know, they were already beginning to stockpile supplies for the invasion of Japan. And I think some people actually believe that even despite them dropping the bomb, the Japanese would not surrender and they would still have to go through with the invasion. Um, so I, there was, uh, there was, a lot of questions. So I agree that there wasn't necessarily, especially at that time, a binary about, you know, dropping the bomb would necessarily lead to victory. I think even in the other, I guess, example was people were still prepared to invade the island even if they had dropped the bomb and the Japanese decided to continue to fight. Well, the list of, and I've, I've read these quotes out before and, and earlier in one of our episodes, but um, the, the list of people who thought the dropping the atomic bombs on Japan was unnecessary to bring about a surrender, include Dwight Eisenhower, Admiral Lay. Did I pronounce that right, Ray? Lee. Lee. <laughs> I always struggle with Lay. Herbert Hoover, Douglas MacArthur, Joseph Grew, the Undersecretary of State, John McCloy, the Assistant Secretary of War, Ralph Bard, the Undersecretary of the Navy, Louis Strauss, Special Assistant to the Secretary of Navy, Paul Neitz, Vice Chairman of the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, um, Albert Einstein, Leo Zillard. Um, you know, there was a long list of people who thought uh, it was unnecessary. I mean, Truman and James Burns and I think Leslie Groves <laughs> thought it was a good idea. But uh, a, a fairly impressive list of people believed it wasn't necessary to bring about the surrender. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's. I think there is a very strong case to be made that the U.S. could have at least held off another couple of weeks. Now, I know they're in the middle of a war, and, and Americans are dying as a result of that, and they wanted to avoid further loss of American life. I get that. And I also understand that they probably didn't fully comprehend what effect the bombs would have on civilian populations. They knew a lot of people would die, 
but they probably didn't fully appreciate the effects of the radiation. They didn't realize that the skin would be sliding off the bodies of children who survived the blast. They would be living with their skin like shedding from them. Um, Maybe if they had fully appreciated that. I mean, they understood that radiation was involved. They understood that, you know, they took precautions at the Trinity test. Not not great precautions. (laughs) One of the... Suntan lotion, right? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be bad, but, you know, a little bit of suntan lotion. Look, it's factor three. That's good. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe if they'd fully appreciated that, they, they, they may have thought twice about it. Um, but from your studies uh, uh, in the past, Jeff, you know, how, how strong an argument against dropping the bomb have you come across? I think those, in terms of, you know, going and arguing against it, I have heard, you know, I, I know that you're right. MacArthur um, had said that he didn't think it was necessary. Eisenhower, I think, you know, and some of those those people you mentioned, I think, unfortunately, some of them, but not all of them were involved in kind of that discussion that was happening at the top levels since the bomb was such a secret project. Um, so they didn't necessarily have any input in terms of the argument at the time. Um, I think, too, with MacArthur, he he was upset that he didn't get to go ahead with the invasion in some respects because he kind of saw it as his, you know, the, the I guess the top or the pinnacle of his career. And during Korea, he definitely advocated using atomic weapons against China. He wanted to use them to create mm-hmm. a radioactive belt, even after he knew what damage, you know. So, I, you know, to kind of take it from the source from, from MacArthur's kind of perspective. Um, mm. But I think the big thing, the big argument against using the bomb is that the United States should have held off because Japan was going to surrender anyways, because Japan was basically on the brink of starvation. Um, you know, they weren't at this point, their entire merchant marine had been virtually sunk. They weren't bringing in supplies. They had a limited supply of fuel, you know, basically all the and we were fire bombing all their cities so all we could we we really had to do was wait and i think in terms of my reading there is some some substance to the argument because you know at that point i know from some of the japanese leadership who were writing in their journals at the time they were even afraid you know at what point did the people stop believing in the divinity of the emperor at what point do they they do not want to go forward with with the war already they already had a lot of people for instance, leaving the factories um, because they had to go to the countryside to barter for food, right? So, the, you know, the society was already starting to crack. Um, you know, the question is, how much longer could they have held out? Um, you know, from, and of course, you know, a lot of, some of that, the United States didn't know. I mean, we, there was a lot of debate about how long Japan was going to hold out. I mean, they had fought pretty fanatically at Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Um, so our expectation is they they would have fought as just as, if not worse, fanatically in Japan, the homeland. Um, you know, we, we didn't have access to that information or, you know, some of the, you know, what was happening internally. Um, so I think in retrospect, that's the strongest argument I've seen. I think it's in terms of, you know, was it moral or not? I, you know, it, it, that's, a I think, a different question versus... Was it going to happen or not? To back to Ray's point, I think you know with the politics and the people that were involved at the moment, 
it's hard for me to imagine a scenario, given the historical players and the way that it ran out, where they wouldn't use the bomb. I tend to think that FDR had survived long enough, he probably would have been more cautious, more reluctant about using it. Because I have the impression from Truman, from the get-go, and we, we, we've you know, quoted from a lot of private diaries and memoirs um, about Truman, he, he felt the need, I think, uh, from the first days of his presidency to act tough. You know, he, he act. He he sort of chewed out Molotov on their first meeting. He tried to stand up to Stalin. He wanted to position himself from the very get go as the tough guy. Um, in in many ways, very similar to your current president, um, except he wasn't maybe completely insane. Um, so he just he, he he tried to position himself as a strong man, as a tough guy, and I think uh, you know he, the position that he took on insisting uh, on unconditional surrender, leaving the fate of the emperor a little bit up in the air, um, had something to do with this 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 tough guy John Wayne persona that Truman had. And, of course, James Burns, uh, who was his key advisor at this point, had, had a similar sort of tough guy persona and also was kind of pissed that he wasn't president when he felt he should have been. Um, I think he threw, threw Truman under a bus in some ways. Um, their relationship obviously didn't survive much longer. Whereas I don't think FDR felt the need to act uh, to, to be the tough guy. He was uh, he was a pretty cunning diplomat. Uh, he was willing to give and take. Um, I think he was a lot more secure in his political credentials than uh, Truman was, because everyone, including Truman, knew that Truman shouldn't have even been vice president in the first place. He kind of uh, he wasn't the <laughs> he was kind of the uh, bottom of the barrel candidate for uh, Veep, let alone for president. You know, I think, especially with with uh, FDR, I think you you raised some good points with FDR in terms of, I mean, I don't know, like, again, I mean, going off of what I've read, I don't know if he would have or not. It's hard to tell. But I will agree that, you know, in him versus Truman, I think, especially FDR really wanted to work with the Soviets. And from what I understand, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. government, especially in the State Department and some in DOD, or that was in DOD at the time, but the Department of War, didn't want... Um, they didn't want Russia to come into the Pacific War. And yeah. FDR worked with Stalin because he felt it would save American lives. And I think, you know, you kind of had those those two factions, you know, FDR you know, in, the, in the New Deal and, and more, I say, progressive, or I shouldn't say progressive, at the time they were liberal. Um, Democrats wanted to work with the Soviet Union and... Once and you know FDR was a big proponent of that. Once he had died, you had a lot of others who were more of the conservative, you know, Midwest Southern Democrats, who you know they did not view the communists and especially the Soviets in a progressive light. Especially people like Forrestal, and you know they were the ones who pushed Truman. You know, kind of especially because you know, like you said, Truman wasn't he didn't have a lot of foreign policy experience. He's coming to the situation. You know, the weight of the world is just falling on his shoulders. 
and he's trying to make the right decisions and he has you know people who are his advisors now who are looking to shape policy or looking to get things done that they knew they couldn't get done with FDR, right? So they're going to try to, they were trying to take a, a, a tougher line with the Soviets. So I think, you know, yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. Like FDR might have handled this whole situation very differently um, than the way that Truman had gone about doing it. And some of the way that the reasons that Truman made some of the decisions that he made was because of his, you know, his his unexperience and him, you know, kind of reacting to the moment and kind of almost making decisions from his gut. You know, it's I I kind of feel sorry in some ways for Truman because you know he he was thrown into a very difficult sit you know uh, position. He had to make a lot of very important decisions without a lot of information, and you know some of that is is also FDR's fault. I mean, FDR didn't really involve him in a lot of conversations about the war. You know, I think they had met like three or four times before he passed away. And those are for a really brief, you know, minutes. I mean, so, you know, Truman was really left in the dark for the most part as vice president. So, you know, all of a sudden he's getting a phone call saying, you know, he has to make these major decisions. You know, it's kind of, I think for anybody, it's a rough spot to be put in. Yeah, we we've talked a bit, um, <clears throat> and including our, some of our recent episodes about um, how they left Truman uh, in the dark when he was Veep, um, which it just seems to me a com- completely foolish thing to do, particularly when you've got a president that's elderly and and very very ill and infirm. Um, I don't think anybody expected him to die in April 1945, but certainly uh, he wasn't in, in peak health either. Uh, and, and particularly when you're in a even in peace times, it would make sense to make sure the Veep is ready to. That's the whole fucking reason you have a Veep in the first place. Right. That's the whole point of having a vice president is to stand in, step up. If the president becomes incapacitated, not let alone when you're in a war. But anyway, uh, a bit stupid. Um, I was reading. Um, sorry, go on. No, I think that's a great point. I think the the ideas or most people when they read vice president, especially I would imagine people who maybe are not as familiar with the United States or American history. You know, they think, well, of course, this is the number two guy. Right. But the way that it had kind of developed in the American political system was you basically took either people that you wanted to give a favor to or you wanted that were some troublemakers and you wanted to stick them someplace where they weren't going to make trouble, you made them vice president. Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a, was a, was a famous example of that, right? He, that guy was never supposed to be president whatsoever, right? They, they made him vice president to get him out of New York because he was making too many problems for the Republican Party, you know, with some of the things that he believed and was doing. So they decided to make him president. So... You know, at that time, you know, Truman, who he picked some, he really picked him because, you know, the country, he wanted to pull more of the conservative elements of the country in the 1934 election with him. And he thought Henry Walls was a, was a liability. Or I shouldn't say he thought, a lot of his political advisors thought Walls was a political liability. But they decided to go with Truman because they felt he would be stronger on the ticket. But they never really. You know, they should, like you said, they should definitely have thought about it, but they never really thought, like, what happens if this guy... And I think it's because, like you said, nobody ever assumed that the president would die. Yeah, and, um, of course, another uh, another famous veep who was uh, a troublemaker they just wanted to get rid of was LBJ. 
There's no way LBJ should have been president. Kennedy's Kennedy's hated him. He hated the Kennedys. And, uh, yeah, they were going to get rid of him too. Unfortunately, Kennedy died before they could get rid of him. Um, anyway, back to back to the decision to drop the bomb. Like Admiral Lay, I think, is an interesting guy to um, to look at on this. Um, obviously, for people who don't remember, he was chief of staff both to FDR and to Truman, at least for a while. Um, he was uh, uh, like an admiral, obviously, Admiral W. D. Lay. Um, uh, was the senior most uh, United States military officer on active duty during World War II. So not a schmuck, this guy. Highly respected um, dude. And uh, according to Truman's memoirs, Lay had said to Truman in 1945, before the bombing, this is the biggest fool thing we have ever done. The atomic bomb will never go off. And I speak as an expert in explosives. So not his, not his finest hour. But, uh, uh, yeah. But once it had been tested, he became strongly opposed to its use as well. In his own memoirs, Lay wrote, Once it had been tested, President Truman faced the decision as to whether to use it. He did not like the idea, but he was persuaded that it would shorten the war against Japan and save American lives. It is my opinion that the use of this barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender because of the effect of sea blockade and the successful bombing with conventional weapons. My own feeling was that in being the first to use it, we had adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages, I was not taught to make wars in that fashion and that wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. Now, of course, as we've already pointed out, the Americans had already used conventional bombing to attack 67 Japanese cities before this time. Um, And he must have had an opinion on that. But, um, you know, I, I find I've found over the years, Jeff, that in conversations with American friends and and colleagues, some of which have backgrounds in um, studying history, when I bring up these objections that guys like Admiral Lay had to the use of it, they are shocked. I find that most Americans I talk to seem to have only ever heard the justification that, well, we needed to do it to stop an invasion uh, so we didn't have to invade the home islands. They've never really heard that there were strong counter-arguments, particularly from the likes of Roosevelt and MacArthur, uh, sorry, not Roosevelt, uh, Eisenhower and MacArthur and Lay, etc. They're, they're quite often shocked. I, I, I just find that Americans have a very lopsided view of this decision, as they quite often honestly have a lopsided view about a lot of things. I can, I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself. Um, I know for myself, you know, in college, we, we took a, I mean, we actually had the debate on the bomb that was, it was covered pretty extensively um, in my undergrad courses uh, a couple of times, um, and then once in a philosophy course. So I know I was exposed to counter arguments in regards to 
you know, dropping the bomb. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know about you, Ray. I, I, were you? I mean, I, I definitely heard those arguments in terms of arguing against it, uh, both on the philosophical kind of moral level and then also on the practical level. Yeah, I went to a, a pretty liberal uh, college, and it, and people were pretty much against it. They understood the context at the time, but they were saying, "Yeah, this is pretty much a weapon designed for you know going against women and children and people who are not in uniform, that kind of thing." Um, but just just to go back to something Cam said ago, there was a a survey done May of last year, 2017, and 56 percent of those who participated, and this was just in the United States, felt that the bomb was used in order to uh, end the war, and so we would not have to invade and um, lose that many more American uh, soldiers. So for whatever reason. This has become the de facto story of America winning the war or finishing off the war in World War II. It is entrenched in our culture and our psyche and our history, and we just cannot believe anything else. And so when these other books come out uh, explaining the details and that um, Truman had ulterior motives, which we'll probably go into a moment with the Russians and that kind of thing, it, it just cannot, it cannot pierce the, the shield, the already cemented story that America did this, we were right to do it, um, and we were trying to end the war to, to uh, minimize the American casualties. And so that is just something that is probably going to go on for a very long time. Jeff, have you ever read uh, Garo Parovitz's book, uh, The Decision to Use the Atomic Bomb? I think I have, but it was a long time ago. Yeah, I, I find it's interesting. I mean, I think out of all the books I've read on the subject, he seems to have done his utmost to get to the bottom of the official story or to go he's gone through all of the extant uh paperwork and diaries and memoirs and official documents i mean i I think the the bottom line he arrived at when he wrote this was that we really don't know what the decision process was because the records just don't exist um there's no official paperwork that shows them weighing up all sides of the argument. Um, and it's it's a very confusing um, decision in, in American archives to, to get to the bottom of. I mean, from what I've read, I, and that's, I remembering that, I, I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. I think it was obviously talked about from what we understand, you know, from what, we that was going back and forth, but it was also, you know, I think we in retrospect have a very clear understanding of what atomic bombs are and you know what nuclear weapons are, especially from you know understanding the consequences of radiation and everything. But because that was not something that they were they understood, I mean, a lot of those day to day military decisions, like you know what cities they were going to bomb, fire bombing, and all those those are those are happened at lower levels, right? Yeah. So. It wasn't top of mind for them to think like, hey, why should we treat this bomb and this weapon any different than the way that we're treating firebombing or any other operation? Why why would I need to ask the president to pick targets or choose? You know, we're already killing hundreds of thousands of people. What difference does it make if this Mm. weapon does it a certain way versus another? I think that was kind of the mentality that they were were kind of working with at that moment. Yeah, 
I think you're right. So what... Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, after you, Brian. Okay, no, since we're about 40 minutes into this, I'm just going to give my... Um, now that we, we've been going around in circles, should we have dropped the bomb? Why did we drop the bomb? That kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm just going to give my last... Uh, version of this, and then and then we can go on from there. But I just find it interesting that on June 17th, Truman writes in his diary, shall we invade Japan proper, or shall we bomb and blockade? I'll make the decision when I have all the facts. So he's already thinking that he has to decide what he's going to do next, which is very weird for the military, because the decision to invade the home islands has already been made. It's uh, Operation um, Olympic and the operation that you mentioned earlier, Jeff. Um, yep. Thank you. I mentioned that when and FD, and, um, MacArthur is going to be in charge of it. It's going to be the greatest invasion in history because MacArthur is going to have 14 divisions. Uh, Eisenhower only had nine divisions on D-Day, so this was going to make uh, MacArthur a legend, which is why he wanted to go along with it. But the point is, this is throwing everybody off. The, the military is finally is going, what do you mean if we invade? It's already been decided. So Truman gets together with Leahy and he says, I want a report. I want numbers. How many casualties will we have if we invade? How many casualties will we have if we just continue to hold out, blockade and bomb, that kind of stuff? So Leahy goes to the, uh, to the uh, Joint Chiefs. He goes to his staff and he says, I want you to prepare a budget and tell me how many people we're going to lose. Now, the Army has already worked this out because they've got to figure things up for body bags, scalpels, plasma, morphine, that kind of stuff. And they've already ordered 135,000 body bags and 500,000 purple hearts. But here's what the Army does. The Army purposefully decides not to tell Truman what he wants to know. Instead of working out any numbers, they use numbers from previous campaigns, like the like the Leyte campaign, like Iwo Jima, where they've given him all these stats. They're not going to tell him that, look, we could lose easily anywhere from 100 to 200,000 people invading these islands. So, so Truman doesn't get the information that he's looking for. However, the, the the real numbers are known by some of the men inside MacArthur's G2 intelligence unit. And one of the guys who was working there, a naval officer, William Mott, who used to work with FDR in the map room, says they're, predict they're, they're expecting maybe up to 600,000 casualties. This is insane. Someone's got to tell Truman. So Mott flies all the way from Asia, all the way to Washington to get this to Truman. But Truman's already gone to go to Potsdam. So Mott puts it in a diplomatic pouch, gets it to Leahy in Potsdam within 24 hours. Leahy tells Truman these new numbers. And so the way, the way so obviously Truman is shocked. So the way I see this entire situation the war is over. We've got them blockaded. We're killing hundreds and thousands of them every day with, with, uh, with the conventional weapons and firebombs. The war is over. It's just a matter of waiting them out. They're starving themselves to death. Uh, but you've got, you've got Stalin. FDR was very frustrated with Stalin right before he died. He actually he said out loud, this guy is breaking all of his promises. This gets to Truman. Uh, at some point, even though they got together, they got along at Potsdam, F, uh, Stalin is refusing to m remove his troops from Eastern Europe and, and allow free elections. So I truly do believe that the bomb was dropped for one, to show Stalin what America could do, and two, to avoid all those American casualties. For me, it was mostly about Stalin, but the whole avoiding American casualties was a very real thing, and I think it factored into Truman's 
thinking. It just wasn't his main reason for doing it. And again, you spend $2.2 billion. You have to use this. It was going to happen. The who's, the why's, the where's don't matter as much. It was going to happen. Yeah, I I, I agree. It was it was going to ha- I, I, it was going to happen. I think in terms of everything you just laid out, I think you know, you, you know, what was the higher factor? What was you know, what did Truman care about more? Is is always going to be debated? Mm-hmm. But I think you know it happening to me. If you you know roll back the film a hundred different times, you know I see it happening eighty to- eighty of the times. You know ninety percent of the time that they move ahead with that decision given what they understood at the time. So then I guess the other question is um, what impact the bombs had on Japan's decision to surrender. Now, the traditional story is bomb. first bomb is dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th. Second bomb is dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th, and then the Japanese surrender. But again, of course, what that official narrative often uh, ignores is that the Soviets declared war on Japan on August 8th between those two. And it was on August 9th that the Supreme Council in Japan met for the first time during the war to discuss surrender. Um, so I guess the big question in my mind is whether or not the decision to surrender was the result of the bombings or of the Soviets declaring war or both combined happening at the same time. And of course, if, you know, what would have happened if the Americans had just held back the bombing, uh, until after the Soviets declared war, would it have been, unnecessary to take hundreds of thousands of additional lives, many of them civilians. But I agree with um, what Ray was saying earlier. I think it's fairly obvious from the uh, surviving um, archival evidence that uh, at least part of the thinking around dropping the bombs was a demonstration to the Soviets. It was a a shot across the bow of the Soviets to say, all right, you might have the biggest land army in the world, but we've got the biggest bomb and we're not, and of course, we're not going to share it with you. And, and that reminds me of something we were talking about Roosevelt before, if it would have been any different. I think um, one, of the, one of the arguments uh, against Roosevelt doing things differently is at the time that he died in uh, April, the Manhattan Project was fairly well advanced. Um, They at least were pretty confident at that stage that uh, Little Boy uh, was going to to work. They understood the mechanics of the uranium bomb well enough, the the gun mechanism to know that would work. They didn't even need to test it. Um, The plutonium bomb was, you know, was still up in the air. But he hadn't shared any of this with Stalin up until the time of his death. Um, now that's not really in the spirit of the uh, partnership <laughs> that they had of allies. Um, of course, Stalin knew that they weren't telling him about it. You have to share it. <laughs> Stalin already knew. Right. But that's, you know, the, one of the debates we often have on our show is when people say, who broke the spirit of Yalta first? Was it, 
You know, FDR complained later on that Stalin had broken the spirit of Yalta. From Stalin's perspective, bitch, you've been building a nuclear bomb and not telling me about it. Who's breaking the spirit of Yalta first? Um, he he knew, Stalin knew, incontrovertibly, because of his bugs and his spies, that the Americans and the British, his so-called allies, were withholding information from him. Pretty important information about uh, technology that they were developing that could have a, a serious impact on the course of the war. So, um, you know, I, I think the fact that FDR hadn't brought Stalin into his confidence at any point in the preceding couple of years about that experiment, even though it wasn't a sure thing, probably indicates that um, it may still not have gone well if FDR had survived. But there is definitely evidence there that they were they wanted to drop it to um, scare the fuck out of the Russians, quite honestly. Um, by the way, in case your listeners don't know about the naming of the bombs, um, Jeff, you know, Fat Man, two bombs, Fat Man. Fat Man was obviously the plutonium bomb. It was named after Winston Churchill. A little bit insulting, I think, but Churchill probably would have enjoyed it. Um, Little Boy was named after Churchill's penis, which I think was rather insulting. Um, uh, but he didn't have he didn't have a bomb of his own, so there was nothing he could do about that. He just had to grin and bear it. You know, I think in terms of the, um, I, I think the for one is I would say I think especially Churchill and Stalin understood that the alliance was an alliance of convenience. I think. Roosevelt had his ideas about the four world policemen and working together afterwards. Um, And I don't want to say that he was duplicitous. That's kind of the wrong answer. But I I do think he kind of had a double standard, if you will, the way he thought about things. And I'm sure you're right. Stalin probably thought pretty much along the lines of what you're saying. Like, you are developing a bomb in the background and you're not telling me anything about it. Um, But, you know, I think the way that Stalin viewed the world was, you know, we're going to have to deal with these capitalist powers anyways, eventually, you know, so the whole, you know, it was an alliance of convenience. All, sorry, Jeff, as I always say, all alliances are alliances of convenience. Yeah. Well, I think in this case, even more so since, you know, I think under normal circumstances, you know, these nations, I mean, if you look up the 20s or 30s, they, they weren't getting along back then so is it the only reason obviously stalin broke his pact with hitler is because he got invaded you know japan one of the reasons why they joined the axis powers in 1940 was because they had assumed that the soviet union would remain an ally of germany right they, they themselves didn't anticipate that hitler would invade the soviet union so you know it was a Really, an, an alliance of convenience and they, they needed each other i mean they, they did work together very well as allies during the to achieve their common objectives, but you know, once those common objectives were achieved, you know, they they were they're going to start to blur at the margins about what they were looking to do. I think that was just a matter of time. You know, in terms of the U.S. using the bomb, I think, you know, it, from the Russian perspective, I mean, from some of the Russian perspectives I've read on it, they've always had a very interesting take on the bomb. Or these are these are Russian historians. I don't know what the average Russian thinks. Is that you know, the bomb gave the United States a, a clear advantage because not so much because it intimidated the Russians, because they were already obviously stealing the information to try to build their own, but more so in the fact is that it, it helped 
the Americans, it did help the Americans facilitate the end of the world quicker so that they could occupy Japan because if the war had gone on longer, the Soviets might have been able to take northern Japan, which is something that Stalin wanted to do, which was would have given them a greater say in what post-war Japan looked like. Um, but because the Americans used the bomb from their perspective, the Soviets didn't really have time to capitalize on their victory over Japanese forces in China. So the Americans killed 400,000 civilians to stop the Soviets getting control of the North Islands. From the so- from some Soviet perspectives I've read on it, is that it gave them a gr- uh, more time to basically secure Japan. Yeah. Well, no, no, and I, I think that's not just a Soviet historian's perspective. I think that's a Western historian's perspective, some of them as well. I mean, again, there's no other way really of explaining the timing other than it's a huge coincidence. But when the Americans had an agreement in place with Stalin to de- that he was going to declare war on Japan around about August 7th, August 8th, again, because it was three months after the end of the the war with the Germans, uh, to drop the bomb a day before that was due to happen, the first bomb, and then drop a second bomb a couple of days later, uh, instead of holding off another couple of days and waiting to see what happens when the Soviets declare war. The only way I can think of explaining it is that they were doing it to get the upper hand on uh, the the surrender negotiations to take credit for the surrender and to get to test their new toy out on real civilian populations and uh, to to demonstrate to the Soviets that they better back the fuck down in some of their negotiations or else. I think another feeling on the American side was you know, the United States had fought the Japanese across all these islands. They had engaged in these battles. You know, the United States had borne most of the burden in the Pacific. And they felt that, you know, for now the Soviets to come in in the 11th hour and also participate in the occupation of Japan was a non-starter for them. They didn't like that. And this is part of the reason why many of them had pushed against FDR even allowing the Soviets to come in in the first place. Although FDR's argument was, well, they might jump in anyways, and then you might as well have them come in on our terms versus, you know, on on the 11th hour anyways. So I think there was also a feeling of, you know, we've lost more people to the Japanese. We should be the ones to, you know, dictate the peace to them. We should be the ones to, you know, occupy the country and not with the Russians. So by that argument, because the Soviets lost more people by far fighting the Germans, the Soviets should have had control over what happened to Berlin and Germany after the war. Yeah, you could say that it's hypocritical. But <laughs> it's a one-way street. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I'm not saying this isn't my argument, but this is I one know. of the arguments that was floated. I know, but that's that's a classic one-sided hypocritical uh, approach to it, you know. Um, anyway, like we're running out of time, Jeff. Um, really great to to have you on and to chat. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to come and chat with us. And uh, congratulations on the show. Um, I, I have listened to a few episodes. I did very early on uh, just to see what kind of style you were doing to make sure it didn't 
conflict with our Wild West approach to doing shows. I said, oh, this Jeff's actually a very serious man who takes this very seriously. Uh, he's not going to be competing with us. Um, he, he's <laughs> he's doing it. He's doing his, It's more like Ray's World War Two show. Very very serious show. Mm. We take it seriously. We just fuck around a lot. Well, we take it seriously. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have any time left, um, but I do. Well, there was one thing I did want to mention uh, about yeah. the dropping of the bomb was um, the Japanese perspective, which I thought was really interesting in terms of doing research on it. You mm-hmm. know, because uh, we talk a lot about the Soviets and the United States. Um, you know, from what I and I did read different accounts, but what I understand from the Japanese perspective, and that you know the 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 council that they held is that the the the, the war council was was pretty much split between. The army, uh, those in the militarists who wanted to basically have a latch-ditch defense of Japan anyways, even mm-hmm. with Russia coming in, even with the bombing, and mm-hmm. those who uh, wanted to get peace. And basically they, they made the argument that the bomb and the invasion of Russia uh, helped them uh, kind of win over the emperor to declare peace or to give up. And if they had only had one of those events, say just the bomb or say just the Russians coming into the event, mm. they would not necessarily had enough momentum to push the emperor to win that argument to get him to say, well, it's over. Um, so that, that I think is an interesting perspective that uh, isn't talked about as much. And that's, that's a good point. But again, you could have let the Soviets declare war on the 8th uh, wait a few days, see what happens, and then drop a bomb. And of course, we haven't, we still haven't even talked about doing a demonstration bombing, sending them the footage from Alamogordo, uh, and say, uh, "Look, we we we've got a couple of these things." Um, now, there are arguments that well, they didn't want to give them advance notice because they would have then tried harder to shoot the B twenty nine out of the sky, or they would have moved all of their industry out of their remaining cities. There's only a handful of cities that they hadn't already had the shit bombed out of. But there are arguments against giving them uh, advanced warning of what was coming. I get that. Um, But at the same time, maybe they wouldn't have had to kill 400,000 women and children and men, civilians. Yeah, I I think there was an argument... um I, re- I do remember reading there there was an argument around having a display or dropping the bomb over the water to kind of make a display. Um, mm-hmm. But the arguments I heard that was made against that was that the Japanese will think that we're weak and that because we didn't use it. And there is also the implication, I think, if I remember correctly, that the Russians would also think that we were weak and that we, we weren't willing to use this, the weapon. So, but you can still use it next week is my point. You don't have to, like it wasn't a one fucking deal. It wasn't like it expired next week. It didn't have a use-by date that said if you don't use it on August 6th, then it's no good. I'm sorry, you missed your opportunity. Come back next time. It's not Wheel of Fortune. They could have, they could have done a demonstration and then dropped it. They could have, they didn't even have to waste a good bomb. They had video footage of the Trinity test, and it's pretty fucking scary video footage. I, I watched it several times yesterday. I It terrifies the shit out of me seven years later watching the video footage. Well, you know, the thing is they would 
Uh, I'm sure the counter argument to that would be that the because, of course, especially even when the Americans dropped the first bomb, there were many in the Japanese army that said that it wasn't a real atomic bomb. It was a faked and the Americans really hadn't. And it took a few days for the Japanese to deploy scientists to get the radioactive uh, readings to come out and say, yes, it actually was an atomic bomb that the Americans used on yeah. them. So I'm sure some would argue that the Japanese military would just say, well, these pictures are propaganda, and this is a propaganda film. So there's, I'm sure the counter argument to that would be, you know, to play devil's advocate, that that would not have convinced them to just, okay, just show but, them the video. But but then you drop the bomb late. Again, it doesn't have a use-by date. You can try to convince them first, even say, hey, listen, we'll fly some of your nuclear scientists to Alamogordo. Come and have a look. Come and check the readings for yourself. Because you know what? It's as radioactive as fuck. Sorry, people who live in New Mexico and in Texas. Um, but, but hey, it's radioactive. Come and check it. I mean, my point is they didn't even try any of this stuff. They didn't try. They just went straight for the nuclear option, which is why we call it going straight for the nuclear option uh, 70 years later. I, yeah, I think it was because that was those kinds of thoughts were just outside of their wheelhouse. It wasn't in the mentality of that period and the people that were making that decision. Yeah. Well, yes, obviously. Um, it wasn't. Anyway. Good chatting with Jeff. We should do this again, man. It's it's great to have you come on and have someone else to uh, counter our arguments and uh, throw different intel in. It's good fun, man. Yeah, definitely. If you guys want me to come for another show, we could, we could definitely do this again. So um, for, for our listeners, uh, they want to check out your show. What's the best way of doing that? The best way of doing that is uh, go to our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. And obviously, uh, our show is at acoldwar.com. And yeah, I hope people should go and listen to both. That's great. Good stuff, Jeff. Enjoy. The, uh, so uh, we'll talk to you next time. All right, for sure. Thank you. Thank you guys Jeff. have a great day.